Let me um, first off start with an I'm sorry to the people in the overflow room and watching online. Um, they've had to listen to Gabe's camera cues from the broadcast booth for the last five minutes. I'm still not sure what happened. And before that, the, the audio was glitchy during the, during the worship. So I, I apologize on behalf of the tech team. Uh, nobody should have to listen to Gabe that way. I'm just kidding. We're so thankful for Gabe filling in today for Randy. But I just want to say thank you to all of the tech people. And um, they're behind the scenes and in the shadows. And uh, I think they go unappreciated sometimes. But we thank you guys, camera operators, sound booth guys, slides, all that good stuff. If you'd like to join the team, yeah, give them a hand. If you'd like to join the team, we'd love to have you. Just come talk to me. There's a lot of different ways to get involved with the technical aspect. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention was um, super exciting. This week, we met with the architect to go over like the electrical plans for the building. And it was so cool to be able to sit in a room and listen to Isaac dream about the things that are going to happen in our new auditorium, <laughs> especially knowing how, like, how bad it is right now. This is all coming down. And um, something that's been planned it has form and purpose is going to be built in its place. So we're super excited about that. So we'll continue to give you guys updates um, as we get more information. So today, second week of Illuminate, today we're going to be talking about darkness will bow to the light. That's the point. Darkness will bow to the light. So I've been thinking about uh, darkness, obviously, and I kind of had a thought this week, like, have you guys ever realized, like, Fear of the dark is a common fear in children. It's not a social thing or a cultural thing. It's a worldwide thing. Um, that fear of the dark is something that's kind of like inside of us from a very early age. Uh, in fact, I have memories. You guys have memories of like flicking the light switch and trying to beat the light to bed, get under the covers before the bulb goes black. I also remember as a child, I lived in my parents' house. I was at the end of a hallway, and my, my younger brother, Ethan, was kind of further up in the hallway, closer to the main area of the house. And I remember thinking, if something were to come and attack, I'm farther down the hallway. And so I could use Ethan's screams as like an early warning sign <laughs> to be able to jump into action or to hide. And it's kind of shameful that I had that amount of logic that kind of lets you know how old I was and still afraid of the dark. But we have this like fear of the unknown and it, and it just kind of holds us. Um, I ran over this article um, in, in the publication Back to the Bible Today. This is from way back from the summer of 1990. And they mentioned this Johns Hopkins uh, University uh, report on the fear of grade school children and how it's changed. So they went back 30 years. They had data from 30 years before. So this is the 1960s. And they said the top five fears of children were, number one, animals. Number two, being in, the, in a dark room, like we're talking about today. Uh, number three, high places. Number four, strangers. And number five, loud noises. And then they followed up 30 years later, so in 1990, and they did the same survey, and they found out that the number one fear in children was divorce. Number two was nuclear war. Number three was cancer. Number four was pollution. And number five was being mugged or being robbed. And it was kind of making this point like the fear in children have, have grown older, have become more adult. These kids are dealing with fears that are more, more adult. And we're 30 years from 1990, so it's even more pronounced now. And I, I realize maybe as we grow older, we kind of we feel like we grow out of a fear of the dark, right? I don't, I don't have that same flip off the lights, jump in bed fear anymore. 
Um, but it's because I fear the actual darkness that's in the world, right? We start to realize the darkness around us. And so it makes sense um, that the, the writers of Genesis would, would start with darkness. But remember, the point of the sermon today is darkness will bow to the light, so these ancient storytellers are, are writing down, um, you know, they, t- they told it orally for years, and then Moses wrote it down, um, the, the, the Genesis or the beginning, um, and it starts with this ultimate fear. If we go back and look at Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 2, you guys heard the astronauts read it, but it says, the earth was without form and void. So there was no form, and it was empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the, the face of the waters. As Jonathan Collins from the Bible Project puts it, um, so you, can, you can't see it, but God is present in the darkness, ready to bring order so that life can flourish. And then we go in, into chapter, I'm sorry, into chapter 1, verse 3, and we get six days of creation. And I have to thank the answers in Genesis for this graphic. Um, That little URL in the bottom, though, is where I found it. It's an online puzzle. You can go and put this together as a puzzle online if you want. But we have these six days of creation, and they mirror each other. We have three days of of, um, forming or separating of creation, and then three days of giving creation purpose or filling creation. So uh, we learned this song in Kid City. If your kids are in there, they want to know day one, day one. God made light where there was none. So in in the first day, God separated the light from the dark. In the second day, he separated the waters above from the waters below, right? The sea, the ocean, and the sky. And on the third day, he separated the land from the waters. And we have a bonus creation on day three. He fills the land with life, with plants. And so he's formed. It's not formless anymore, right? He's formed creation. And then we have three days where he fills creation or gives it purpose. We have the light is separated into the bodies that govern the day and govern the night, right? The, the sun, the moon, the stars. That's day four, mirrored from day one. Day one was form. Day four was purpose. And then we have um, the waters above and the waters below. So the sky and the ocean is filled with life on day five. So day two, we have the form, and then the day, day five, we have the purpose or the filling of that. And then on day six, the, the land is filled with living creatures, as the, and the earth brought forth living creatures. And then there was a bonus creation, and that was humans. And we were created in God's image and with a purpose, and we're going to talk about that next week. But it says, and God breathed life into Adam. God is taking the chaos and he's making harmony. He's taking the darkness and he's making light. And it's interesting, if you go back and read it in the original Hebrew, uh, in our English translation, we have, and the evening and the morning, that was the first day, or the evening and the morning, that was the fifth day. Uh, But it's the same word, and the, is the same Hebrew word for let there be, that we saw in let there be light. And so it's really like, let there be evening, let there be morning, or evening exists, then morning exists, day three. And so there's this like big debate right now on whether those were literally 24-hour days or if they represented like a long age. And it's a pretty heated debate, and it's pretty divisive in the people who are involved in that. And I feel like in some way, they're completely missing the point. 
in each step of, of God's creation, he ends that step by saying, there was darkness and now there's light. There was evening, but the dawn has arrived. Darkness will bow to the light. And then after that, we looked at last week, the few, first few stories, right? How Adam and Eve, they chose darkness and were cast out into it. And then humanity's failed attempts at trying to bring darkness to light. And that was because the darkness was part of us. And then God chose this one man, Abraham, and he promised Abraham that through his descendants, he would bring light into the world. Specifically, he would make his descendants into a great nation, and then there would be a descendant that would bring light into the darkness. So from one, God, from one man, God made an entire nation of people, the Israelites, and, and God gave them instructions Right? When they left Egypt as slaves in the wilderness, God gave them instructions on how to be his people, on how to be light bringers, and they were horrible at it. They were horrible at it. And that was kind of the point. Um, they kept messing up. They kept turning back to the darkness. They couldn't deal with the darkness because the darkness was inside of them. The darkness was in their heart. Even great people, like God called out guys like Gideon or Samson or David, and it says in Scripture that David was a man after God's own heart. They couldn't escape the darkness. They ended up, each and every one of them, kneeling to the darkness in some form or fashion. If you're following along with the church uh, Bible reading, um, if you're not, it's tinyurl.com forward slash CPC Bible 22. And it's been great. But if you're, if you're following along with us, we're in 2 Chronicles. And 2 Chronicles actually tells the story of the end of the Old Testament. Even though it's towards the beginning, it's in the first half of our Old Testament. It tells the story of the end. And it's specifically highlighting King David and the promise that God made through David that he would bring a ruler that would rule forever. He would be like God and rule forever but it does a bad job. Like it tells about all of David's descendants and they were all screw ups. There was a couple of kind of light. There's little glimmers of light in the story, but for the most part, they screwed up. And whenever they chose darkness, they would go into exile, right? They would be cast out of their, of their promised land. And it ends at the end with the end of second Chronicles is the end of a 70 year exile. And it wasn't enough. That 70 years in darkness was not enough to get the, the people of Israel to turn back to the light. And so God tells them they were gonna, they're going to have 490 more years of exile, of waiting for this promise that was made to David to come true. Almost half a century. Darkness will bow to the light. And then we jump forward that 500 years, and we have uh, John, one of Jesus' disciples. In his account, this is how he starts at John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, that were sorry, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. There are so many parallels between Genesis and the beginning of Christ's story, even down to like him coming into the world as a new creature, a second Adam. Um, the disciple Matthew, in his gospel, he records that the Spirit of God came upon Mary, and she was with child. But the Greek word there for spirit is pneuma, and that means breath. Just like God breathed his breath into the dust to create Adam, he breathed his breath into Mary to create a new Adam, a new creature that was from him to bring the light. And the world was so buried in darkness that they couldn't recognize that the light had come. They were so deep into the night that they couldn't see the dawn. Now, Jesus had this interaction with some religious leaders where they were asking questions about him. And in John chapter 5, verse 39, we read, Jesus kind of lays it out for these religious leaders. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's all these stories we just talked about. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They were so deep in darkness that they couldn't recognize the light. And it's interesting, at the end of Jesus' life, in, in, his, in his crucifixion, in his moment of sacrifice, um, the witnesses record that there was darkness that covered the face of the earth. And it wasn't, you know, we try to like give it like scientific um, explanations, like there was a, an eclipse, but we have good record of when eclipses happen. It wasn't an eclipse. It was an actual darkness that covered the earth. There was darkness. And then three days later, the light rose with the dawn. Darkness will bow to the light. And so, hopefully in this, you, you kind of ha have that, that question of why uh, did God have to come and why did God have to die? And that is, that is a very, very deep philosophical, theological question. You could spend the rest of your life just thinking and pondering about that. But I think like the simple answer is that God came and God died to bring the light to us. I've got something to show you guys real quick. Quick video. Watch this. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, 
the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal. And then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. 
but instead Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. I'm sure you guys can kind of make the analogy there with the cleanness and light and uncleanness and darkness. I think they made it pretty obvious in the video too. I don't know if I could have made it any better. Um, But God gave them this like ritualistic law to show that when in the Old Testament, when you dealt with darkness, you took on that darkness. Check this out. In the Gospel of Mark, we see this interaction that Jesus is having with these religious leaders, and they're specifically talking about this ritual law, specifically the ritual law about what you can and can't eat. And, and Jesus says it's not what goes into your body, but it's what comes out of your body that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your body that makes you dark. And um, like normal, the disciples just don't get it. So later on when they're, they're alone, they're like, Jesus, what did that, what did that mean? And Jesus said, you know, it's not what goes into your body because it do- that doesn't go into your heart. It goes into your stomach and then is expelled. Yet Jesus talked about poop and Mark. Um, but he said, it's what comes out of you, what, what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean, that makes you dark. And we read, he has this list in Mark chapter 7. He says, for for from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. They make you unclean. They are your darkness. And I think it's easy for us to look inside of us and see that darkness inside of us and look into the world and see that darkness in the world especially. But Jesus has come to make all things new. John records it in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says, and we repeat this every year, my family does, during our Advent time leading up to Christmas, we light a candle and we repeat. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness because they'll have the light of life. Darkness will bow to the light. Now, the disciple John, in his later days, he's exiled to this island, similar to how the Israelites were exiled away. And he writes this book called Revelation. And in this book, he has a vision of the end, what they were talking about in the video. 
And I want to read you guys part of that, that vision, what's coming. In Revelations 19, starting in verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and, is right, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are, fill, are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an, a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then two chapters later, John gets this vision of the kingdom that, that God is setting up, this city. And it says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Darkness will bow to the light. That list that we got from Jesus, that darkness that comes from inside of us, I want to let you guys know right now, evil thoughts and sexual immorality will bow. Theft and murder will bow. Adultery will bow. Coveting will bow. Wickedness will bow. Deceit will bow. Sensuality and envy will bow. Slander, pride, foolishness will bow. Divorce will bow. Arguing and strife will bow. Denominations will bow. The Republicans will bow. The Democrats will bow. Every authority on earth will bow. Addiction will bow. Disease will bow. Death will bow to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And whether it's bowing in my life today by the power of the risen lamb or bowing in the future before the conquering lion, every knee will bow. Darkness will bow to the light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the story that you've been telling throughout all scripture, that you haven't left us alone in the darkness, but that you constantly work 
to bring light. We thank you for the gift of your son who came as your holiness embodied in humanity to show us the way. And we thank you for the kingdom that you're building and our invitation to be part of that. We praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys stand and sing with me.